What's up, UXers? I am super excited to share this conversation I had with Ben Simmons, who is not just a fellow UXer, but he's also an expert on stress management. So we actually, we first connected over Object Orient UX. Um, Ben loves taking on super complex design challenges, and lo and behold, he found that OAUX was a big help to his process. But although OUX made those really hairy projects a lot more manageable, it still didn't make the projects completely stress-free. Imagine that. So he realized that if he wanted to continue taking on these really ambitious, large-scale projects uh, as a senior-level UX consultant, he was going to need some professional-grade tools to basically manage all the necessary evils that this type of work, um, that comes with this type of work. So he started dipping into the world of stress management, and he eventually got certified as a stress management and performance coach. That's so cool. So in this conversation, I get really, really excited about his workshop and basically how he's UX keeping calm for UX designers. And he hasn't, he's been teaching the workshop in person, um, and he hasn't taken his workshop virtual yet in this new context that we're living in. Um, so because we, I, I mean, I think we all need some extra tools these days to manage all the uncertainty and just adapting to new modes of working and being the sometimes a little bit annoying instigator that I am, I actually convinced him to let me host an online workshop really because I want to take his workshop so bad and I want to share it with all of you. So tickets are on sale now for Saturday, May 23rd at 10 a.m. Eastern time. It's a two and a half hour workshop and through Ben's guidance and lectures and worksheets that he's designed, you'll actually come away with your own custom playbook for stress management. So the workshop's only 29 bucks, less than the cost of a New York City yoga class. So have a listen here. And if you like what you hear, if you like where Ben's going, hopefully you'll decide to join us in a few weeks to learn some techniques for gathering your zen uh, designed for UXers by a UX designer. So the link is, of course, in the show notes, but you can go to uxwithoutthestress.eventbrite.com. Okay, y'all stay safe and healthy and calm and enjoy the show. What's up, UX designers? Welcome to the UX Hustle Podcast. This is a show about having fun designing intuitive and valuable experiences and crafting a fulfilling career within UX design. Now here's your host, Sophia Wojciechowski-Prater. Today we have Ben Simmons. He is a senior UX consultant calling in from the UK, from Bristol. You're still in Bristol? I am. Wonderful. And we actually met um, over email. We've never spoken in person. And we met over email back in 2017. Then you reached out to me to ask if it was okay to present a talk on object or in UX. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate you asking for my permission. But anybody out there that wants to do a talk on OUX, I, I want to know about it. But you, of course, you have permission, as always. So we might talk a little bit about object or in UX. I would love to hear about how you're using it. We recently got back in touch because you were asking about OUX style quant testing. So we might geek out on that just a little bit, but we're really here to talk about this new workshop that you've been offering live for a while and online, of course. Now uh, we can talk a little bit about my, maybe how you're transitioning that online, but it's a workshop on how, uh, for UXers on how to handle stress better within their work. Um, so it's called UX without the stress. I always say, um, cause we're on the UX hustle 
podcast here, but I always say the art of hustling is hustling with less sweat, basically working smart and not working hard. So that's my little intro for you. But for those, you know, I would like to get you a little, get to know you a little bit more. So can you just introduce yourself a little bit and talk to us about your UX journey, kind of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. That's a lovely intro. Thank you very much. My UX journey, it's one of those where, well, I started off in the advertising research world. I was working with an ad agency and I was part of the team that was looking after user research um, and that would then go on to form their ad strategy. So that was doing all sorts of qual and quant research and it was looking at users and who are the users and user needs and decision-making architecture and all of these kind of things. And it was all jolly interesting stuff, but I didn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't really taken by the ad industry itself. So after about two years there, I, I, I wanted to move more into the, um, well, I wanted to move more into the, the digital world and I could see that there was much more kind of creativity and room for growth and experimentation in the online and digital world, in the internet world as it was kind of emerging at the time. So I transitioned into, into the internet world, but still kind of in the, in the advertising research side of things. And the company I was in, they had a sort of a, a, a sister business, which was what you might say is now a UX consultancy. But of course, it wasn't called that then. It was called a, they called it a digital consultancy. And they did user testing. They did information architecture. They did lots and lots of um, digital strategy so sort of commercial strategy and they they did they, they actually did quite a lot of stuff with pioneering of uh, video user testing and playing it back so so I, I I had a window into that world and I saw that that's where I want to be I want to be in that side of the world applying user research consumer psychology towards actually making the stuff making the making websites a few years later it sort of was articulated back to me a little bit better which was about oh okay so you went to serving user needs rather than manufacturing user needs which was kind of what the ad, ad, ad side world was. Right. So that was quite a neat way of describing what my motive was for that transition. So I started working on those. I did a course alongside it, which was basically websites uh, and how, how websites are built. And I also did courses in things like HCI and all the time just, just building up my experience within, um, within the work as well. So yeah, it started off on the research side of things. So I was doing lots of stuff researching users and, and both qual and quant but then it's just started moving further and further into the design side of things so I started kind of broadening out I suppose down the kind of the workflow down the UX workflow so probably it probably took me several years of doing that before I could call myself actually a, a UXer but yeah I just I just built built up my skill sets from starting at the research and strategy end and then building up a little bit more into information architecture and then a little bit more into wireframing, prototyping and so on. Um, so I think now I can probably say I am an actual grown up at UX. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can sort of I can quite confidently say I can do a sort of an end to end in a UX sense 20 years on. <laughs> So would you would you say that you're self-taught? Largely, yes, I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yes, I would. I didn't do a formal HCI degree or master's or anything like that. I did I did lots of um, remote courses and some face-to-face -face ones, just topping up skill sets. But large, mm -hmm. yeah, largely self-taught. Yeah. And so those courses that you were taking, were you working full time yeah. as you were taking those courses? I was. I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was using. Um, this was evening stuff. This was using my holiday allowance. Yeah, this is just one of those things, you know, I, I, I could see the direction I wanted to go. Uh, so it's just like, yeah, go for it. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Any courses? Um, so I, I don't want to date you too much, but um, any courses that you uh, would recommend that you think were really that were really transformative that are still around? Um, I don't know how long how long ago was this? Um, this was probably uh, well, I've been I've been sort of working for about twenty years, so this would probably be about twelve years ago, something like that. That I was okay, twelve fifteen years ago. That I was making the the switch more into UX. The one that I found really useful was it's on Coursera online and it's a it's, a, it's an online course that was created by the Stanford University lot uh, and it was it was just it was human computer interaction um, and I had a little trial of several courses that was the one that I found that it stood out and it was really practical and it was really good and, okay. and I just really the 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 course tutor on there as well just yeah just was really good and you could tell he was super experienced awesome well um we'll dig it up and we'll definitely link to that yeah. in the show notes so what do you think makes a good ux designer why like why do you think you gravitated to this field why do you even think that you gravitated to research and then from research into more of that um the design side what is it about you so I think, well, you need, obviously, the sort of the, the there is a kind of um, a calling type thing here, which is just wanting to make things just a little bit better w without thinking that we are really changing the world, because, of course, we're not in any dramatic sense. But in our own little way, we do what we can. I think there is a part of that. I think that runs through all, all UXs, you know, in our industry. You go to the conferences and there is that thread that seems to me across most of our community is your heart's in the right place. Um, you are a you're for the people. And so that kind of serving rather than exploiting attitude seems to just run through. So that is something that you can't you can't quash that. So that I think is just as a kind of a, a quality. Then in terms of the sort of the skill sets, I think things just naturally emanate from that. So the level of empathy, the amount of analysis, so the, the kind of the oh, that'll do attitude. You don't, you don't hear the, the kind of that'll do attitude that much across UXs, right. you know? So there is a kind of, and this is, this, this is where some of these traits can kind of go to an unhelpful end, which is the kind of almost the perfectionist aspect over analysis, you know, another thing we need to keep an eye on. So it's these, all these qualities that are, are just cr critical and, and, and beautiful and brilliant that is across the UX industry, but they do kind of need a bit of a check on them. So there's the a creative eye, there's a cooperation, bags of empathy, analysis, seeking evidence for things. I think all of these qualities, it's just, you know, you, you tend to see people that people that sort of have been doing UX for several years, we can we can come across as quite a similar type because I think that I think the ingredients are kind of pretty similar. And that's what makes it such a wonderful community. Isn't it just? just because it really is. The what you said about needing a check on that on that perfectionism, the over-analysis. I am definitely um, a recovered perfectionist, right. a recovered plan over-planner. Yeah. Um, definitely can spin my wheels in research and planning so much. But I have gotten over that to in, in a large part. So just going back to constraints, do you think that you know, having to work within a, a, a small bookshelf <laughs> yeah. or having to work within a, within a timeline, um, within a budget. Yeah. Those are the obvious ways to kind of rein in that perfectionism. Yeah. Are there any other good ways that maybe you've learned to, to rein that in and be okay with that, that 80%? Well, I, what I, what I have found is, um, in, in a UX, in a UX practitioner sense is, um, and this is just actually through, just experience over the years. I mean, I, I've, I started off in the kind of, you know, the discovery phase of projects. That really was my world. And then I moved a bit more into the define phase and then a little bit more into the, the kind of the, 
low fidelity designing phase. And actually, what, once I was spending more time prototyping and low fidelity prototyping and just getting stuff done and getting something that you can put in front of users and test and iterate on that, to me, it was like, ah, this is, this is the golden part of the project. This is where it comes together and this is where you really learn. And, and I sort of fell more in love with the kind of the define and low fidelity designing bit of the project than the discovery part. And so I really, I really just sort of thought, actually, do you know what? I, do, do the discovery that needs to be done up front. But as soon as I can get into low fidelity prototyping and be very clear that don't fall in love with the low fidelity work. Don't fall in love with prototyping. Do it for discovery. So mm-hmm. prototyping for discovery became my mantra. So you're creating stuff, but you're doing that to learn and you have to work hard to throw it away and not fall in love with it and not think that's the final solution. And little things that can help with that is um, I try to always be in a habit of creating more than one. So if you're coming up with something lo-fi and you're doing it because you just want to test something like the kind of the object or the conceptual map of something or labeling or whatever it might be, don't just test one, you know, make sure you test two, because just that means that you're not going to, you're not kind of, you're not falling too much in love with one, with one version. So, so that I think is probably one of my biggest things is, and this, this is always contentious, like jumping to solutions and jumping to putting pixels down. And my argument always for that is, please believe me, I'm not looking to create solutions by creating prototypes. I'm just creating other stimulus for discovery. Right. So, yeah. um, so that's, 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 that's kind of my, my approach for that. And, and actually that's really helped with momentum on the project and not getting too stuck in discovery. So I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit because a big thing that I teach is wait to start sketching, wait to start prototyping. And I'm a little bit of a, um, of a purist about it, but I do know that the truth of it is, is sometimes you have to see it to understand it. We're yeah. very visual people. And as long as like, I, I, I like this idea of prototyping for discovery, not prototyping to necessarily lock in a solution. Mm-hmm. So whether that you're doing these kind of low fidelity sketches or low fidelity prototypes, it can help you understand the problem better, actually, which I think is really interesting. But I think what I'm trying to unteach so many UX designers is going straight to that solution, going from your discovery to the solution and sort of skipping over that information architecture, skipping over creating a conceptual map yeah. or an object map and just starting to put boxes on and, you know, squiggles to show <laughs> like there's going to be some text here. Yeah. There's going to be an image here. What kind of image? We don't know. What yeah. kind of text? No clue. What yeah. is it going to represent? Absolutely no idea, but it's going to be in the upper left-hand corner. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to undo. And I wonder, you know, it's like so many things, the truth lies somewhere in between. Yeah. And that it is good to start getting some of those visuals out of your system to help you understand the problem. And I think I'm going to really try to roll in that particular articulation when I'm when I'm telling people and I'm slapping hands and say, don't start sketching the login screen right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I completely concur. I mean, I, I, I should qualify that with saying, um, of course, you need a you need a model, you need some form of information architecture behind that before you start before you start prototyping. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever sort of dream of starting putting putting something together unless you've got something, a, a conceptual map, a sitemap, whatever it is. Yeah. For me, the thing was more about the field research, mm-hmm. looking fi- finding all of the different sources of research you could be doing before you actually start to find the shape for the system. That's the thing that I was looking to kind of ease a little bit on the time spent on that side of things. Right. So you are a 
UX consultant and you have been independent for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to become your own boss? Have you always operated that way or is there something that made you decide to switch? Um, no, I've, I've wanted to know uh, for about five or six years, I've, I've uh, been independent uh, consulting and doing, and doing contracts. And I've wanted to do that for a while. But the main reason, and this, this is one of these things that actually makes me sound, I think makes me sound a little bit sort of selfish. My main motive was that I wanted to keep progressing in UX, but I didn't necessarily want to pro progress in the kind of the, the career progression, become a manager, run a team then become a director and run department i didn't necessarily want to do that i wanted to i wanted to keep it keep my hand in the craft i wanted to keep perfecting the craft of projects of ux projects and progress that direction rather than and it seems to be the case generally that progression if you're in a company and in a career it tends to take you through the management route and i did that for a while and after a while i thought no 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 i've got to get back to the projects the projects is where that's my mojo. And so for me, I thought, well, annoyingly, getting back to projects, that is like climbing back down the ladder in, in a way. And I thought, or is it? And, and then the, the, the idea of going more independent just became obvious to me then. And I was speaking to other people who had gone that route. And I, yeah, I just thought that's, that's exactly the way to do it is to just become a, you know, you can become more specialist and full on practitioner don't necessarily need to take on the kind of the team management and the department department head you don't have to go that route so that was a conscious choice to to switch and i waited for the, everything to line up like need to have an amount of savings need to have a load of contacts need to feel confident and know your know your stuff i waited for all of those to be in place and um and then there was a particular project um where i was seconded by my company by the company i was working for I was seconded to set up a basically a, a design lab, a, a sort of a, an experienced design lab. I've never heard that word. Oh, have you not? Um, seconded. Seconded? Seconded, right. So that's basically, you get that a lot in the consultancies where you, you, get, um, you get placed in a company. Mm. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So I was working for an agency, a UX agency, and I was placed. I was placed with, with another company. This is a bank. Um, in the UK and uh, and that was a six-month engagement there and as that was wrapping up I just thought yeah this is the time this is the time the way I've been working in this role was good and, and actually now is the right time and all these conditions are right so yeah I just went for it and, it, and it's just it, I've been I've been lucky in that it's worked out and I've, uh, I've had unbroken work the projects have been good and they've been really juicy and they've they've tended to be sort of large OOUX kind of big system software kind of projects which Fine. yeah i know completely just like the big puzzles so uh, yes. <laughs> it's worked out yeah it's really worked out yeah that's great and i i'm definitely i'll i'll echo that i'm in i'm in the same boat where when i was in full-time positions as soon as i started inching towards some sort of kind of managerial promotion where i was like a couple people were were reporting to me i i would usually just switch jobs <laughs> So that was my, <laughs> and then I was like realizing that I keep moving jobs. Like, why am I moving jobs? And I, I love to mentor, but I hate to manage. Yeah. And I, when I finally realized that I um, decided to go out on my own and then I, and then I forgot and I would try to hire people and then yeah. I would realize that I hate to manage. So if you're out there and you're thinking that there's something wrong with you because you're progressing, right? So, and you are not as happy. 
then maybe this is another another uh, path for you. I also think just to add to that, I, th I think in our industry, we're not, we don't, we don't, we're not very good at uh, building mm, managers, yeah. training managers. I have a friend, I have a friend in a different industry and he, he was a consultant, he was like an IT consultant. The company he was working for encouraged him to um, become a team manager and a, and a department head. And I was talking to him about it. His experience was radically different. They, he went on, he went on these almost like retreats to understand what exactly is involved in being a manager and all the people skills and all the support networks around that they give, gave him to become a manager. They really treated mm -hmm. it as a, as a proper discipline. And I was just like, oh man, that's just, that's Never. not what we have. You just know. So yeah, I, th I think, I think that's something as an industry we can learn is like management is a skill set. You need yeah, to train for it. It's not just a it. promotion that, okay, next, next week, now you're a manager and now you need to start building a team. No, that's so true. It's a, yeah. it's a really true observation. And then the other thing about going into that specialization or going independent is it gives you, instead of spending that if you do want to spend the time managing and building a team and and really like designing the team, it's almost the, the design of the of that group. That's amazing. Go do that. We need good people doing that. But if that doesn't appeal, um, that also opens up the space for doing thought leadership and actually progressing the industry, yeah. which it sounds like you're doing. And I do want to I want to get into that. So UX without the stress workshops. How is this idea born? How did you come up with it? It came out of, um, well, I've always, you know, some people just glide through life, don't they? And they're just, things bounce off them and they take everything in their stride. So some people are like that. Um, I am not like that. And so on the work I've been, and the projects I really like are the ones that are just kind of larger, a bit more complicated, a bit more intricate. And I love those projects. They're more of a, they're more of a puzzle. But it seems to be that they can be a little bit more demanding and they can be a little bit more stressy and there can be all sorts of other factors going on, not just the complex thing you're building, but also the, the team structure. It's normally larger companies, complexity around roles and overlapping, overlapping roles and responsibilities. And all of these things mean that it can be, in my experience, it can be those type of projects can be a little bit more stressy. So I, maybe about four or five years ago, I just sort of I sort of thought it was actually it was when I when I um, chose to be independent I thought right what am I going to do with my training and development and I just made a conscious decision to invest my time and money that f for all kind of um, training and personal development to invest it in soft skills because it, it struck me that actually I kind of know what I'm doing with work I enjoy the work but if I could make it all a bit smoother and file away some of these more stressful edges that would be everything. That would be me having my cake and eating it. So, so I consciously chose to try and focus on developing soft skills, particularly around productivity, performance, stress, those kind of things. So I just had a look around and I found some good courses. Um, and in the UK, there's um, the London Centre for Coaching and I did some courses with them. And they were all around this area. They're all around performance and stress and productivity. And I just, I just, I just drunk them up and I did as I did as many courses as I could, strung them together, did a certification, and all of this was just around around work again. Yeah, I just loved it. And I, I um I had, I had so many penny dropping moments when I did the course. And one of them was to start with, they listed out a whole load of qualities and characteristics that you might be using in your workplace, in in your job. And it was all things like um, creativity, empathy, cooperation, pattern spotting being able to form memories and all these things. There were about 15 of them. And then they said, right, exercise is to see how many, see how many of these qualities you think you 
are, are kind of critical to you and your job that you need to do your job. And it was like, well, okay, I see where we're going with this. <laughs> and I was just tick. I need all of these to be, to do UX. You need all of these. You need all of these. You need all of these. And they said, right. So here's what happens if you're working under too much pressure or if there is stress, if your body's in a, in a stressed out state or acute stress, they call it. And they said, basically, this is all switched off. All these qualities are switched off. And it mm. was like, right, you can't, you basically can't do UX properly if you're stressed. Wow. And that was just like, <laughs> oh man. So, so that was it for me. So, so, so out of all the little kind of things that we learned around um, advanced problem solving, performance, whatever else and stress, to me, it was like, that's the one thing to try and kind of resolve and get on top of. So that was the course. And off the back of doing it, I just thought, look, I just think it's not just, this is not just what I can gain. This is, I think could be useful for, you know, my community as well. So I just started sharing some of these resources with people in my team. And then I just sort of started thinking, actually, some of these resources are a bit kind of cranny. They're a bit basic. They're a bit ugly looking. They're a bit convoluted. So I just started kind of redesigning some of these. And then I just thought, okay, I'm enjoying this. So I just created a workshop and create a load of artifacts around it. And it's really, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's now workshops that I run um, at conferences or with organizations or with individuals. And it's basically around how to help UX designers navigate challenging projects. And that's basically it. And it's a little bit of stress management. It's a lot of productivity and just how to set projects up well. And that's, that's really it. And a lot of it is very basic techniques. Do you feel like as you've started repackaging all this information that you learned to serve it to UX designers and since you've started teaching it, mm. do you feel like you've internalized the content better? Do you feel like you've gotten better at managing your yeah. own stress through teaching it? Yeah, completely. A- absolutely. There's, I mean, there's, 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 things that, there's things that I've kind of repackaged so there's things like doing task modeling, which I love doing task modeling. And I did that for what's the task model for an individual manage, trying to manage their own stress. And I did that little task model because on the course we did, they had loads of models. Um, and this was from the kind of the coaching psychology world. And the models were, they'd freak you out. Sophia, they would, if, if you saw them, you'd just say, That's, those are terrible <laughs> models. And um, so straight away, I was just like, there's one thing I can do. I can knock up a good task model so just redesigning that and um and i and that's that's i I go through that in the in the workshop is there's quite a few instances where in the workshop there's we're talking about performance and stress but we're also kind of leaning on ux techniques as well so there's a little bit about task modeling there's a little bit around um sort of research analysis methods so you know the classic thing when we're kind of analyzing research and we're looking for okay what's this person's situation what's this person's thoughts and what are this person's behaviors that's just what we're doing when we're analyzing research well we can use that same technique for ourselves when we are just having a little pause and a little reflect how am i doing how are things going how do i feel how am i set up we do just a little self diary and then we go back over it and we highlight okay there's some things about my circumstance there's some things about some unhelpful thoughts here's some things about behaviors and you can just start to highlight Using kind of those kind of UX research techniques, you can do a little bit of a little bit of a self-survey and start to just unpack, ah, okay, I'm taking on too much, or I'm forgetting to have a little break here, or my role is not totally clear alongside this other person. I'm oh, it's so with. meta. <laughs> it's so meta. 
<laughs> no. So can we talk a little bit more about task models? Because I think we can all have an idea and I, I have an idea bubble in my head on what a task model is. Um, and I think probably every yeah. listener is going to have a different idea. So can you describe a task model in the UX sense and also how you're applying it um, within your workshop? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, task models are um, just ways of breaking down people's behavior, people's step-by-step behaviors, uh, just so that you can see exactly what the different um, what the different steps are within a particular within a particular task that somebody's doing. So normally, it's when you've got a repeating task. So I don't know. Um, I search for a something, or um, I'm looking for uh, an item of clothing. And interestingly, if you talk to sort of um, therapists and occupational therapists, they go through a similar thing with their patients where when people forget their the step by steps to do basic things, as some people will do when they have, you know, some kind of breakdown or stroke or some kind of um, mental impairment, they have to they have to learn things. They have to build things back up again. So how do I brush my teeth? You have to learn it step by step. And it's all these things that you take for granted that for us are just automated uh, behaviors task modeling is breaking those down you're just saying what are the steps and you just show which things are linear steps so it's a i do a then i do b then i do c and you also show things that work in a kind of a um a kind of a more of a cyclical sense so it might be that you do a then b then c and then you might do you'll be doing a combination of a bit of e a bit of f a bit of g a bit of h depending on depending on you know what those things are and what your circumstances and you're just breaking down that little task and the reason you're doing it is from ux point of view it's so that you engineer a process or a journey that's intuitive and that's absolutely right so you've got you've got a little kind of uh that's your brief that's your brief brief for building a whatever it is a, a flow or a checkout or a um or a process and yeah, there's a, my old company, um, CX Partners, they, they did quite a lot of work on that. And um, Richard Caddick um, covered those quite a lot in, in one of his books. So yeah, task modeling was quite a, quite a big thing when I was, when I was working there. So. Awesome. So um, when you're, when you're and, and I, I definitely, I had the same idea in my head on what a task model is. So we're on the same page there, which is great. Um, there's so many, wor- so many words for the things that we do and the artifacts that we create in this industry. I always want to make sure that we're like, Uh, are we talking about the same thing here so when you apply that within your workshop is it are you actually doing the task model on your own tasks and and really breaking it down so for that one for specifically for task models that is um no i i use that just as a way of of showing what the process is for managing stress Mm -hmm. so that's just a way of summarizing what a management a, a, a managing stress process looks like and by breaking it down into a, a task model what i then do is say right here we go can we all spot the kind of the one well, there's two moments there's two moments within it that are, that are critical that you basically if you're if you're in a, a project and it's becoming a bit too pressured and a bit too demanding it's just going to get it's just going to escalate and escalate and escalate and there's these two moments, if you do a task model, there's these two moments where that are your kind of gateways. They're your ways out of that increasing stress. And by doing a task model, you can just sort of say, ah, there they are. And they just leap out and they, they, they leap out as being, we can see from this diagram that you can only access things like reflecting and changing behaviors if you do this one thing. 
Uh, and, and that one thing, that little gateway moment is it's really simple, but it's resting, it's pausing and resting. And it sounds really pedestrian and really trivial, but by doing a little task model, you can see that actually the, the, the kind of the critical moment in improving pressures or managing stress is, is, is down to whether or not you're in, you've kind of built up a habit of having pauses and having breaks and being able to rest from what you're doing. And it sounds really trivial, but it's, it's um, just from talking to people, it seems so common that people just don't mm-hmm. have that a lot of the time. And, you know, it goes around and they're in something that's challenging and the project's all encompassing and they get engrossed in it. And they have no way of being able to sort of take the pressure off it because they're, they're not in this habit of taking hourly or whatever, hourly pauses, rests and reflections. Um, and so if by doing a little task model, you can sort of say, ah, that's, there you go. That's your moment right there. We have to see it. And, and we if have you to can... see it and map it out and to say, okay. And it's almost yeah. a way of, if it's mapped out and this is the model. So basically what you're doing, it sounds like to kind of parrot it back is you are showing people that you can't do your job properly when you're stressed out. And to do your job properly, there's certain things that you need to do. And I'm giving you permission to do those things. And here's the model. Here's the task model on how to avoid getting too stressed out. And where are you in this process right here? Okay, you need to take a break. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, we need people to, we need permission. I mean, I I have an app on my computer that tells me to take a break. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Well, the, the, and the thing with this is it's all around habits. You know, if, if you've got habits for not take, if your habit is not taking a break and just pushing on through, just going to be hard. To, it's it's going to be hard to, to change that and create a habit of, of resting and pausing and doing a little bit of a self-survey. The other thing as well is basically just a just a little audit and a, a little cheat sheet of here's all the different places where stress is going to where stress is going to be um, manifesting for you. So within the workshop, Basically, there's three camps, um, which most people, most people know this, particularly anybody that's done any form of um, CBT or talking therapy or mindfulness or meditation. You'll know that it's not just the external world that affects how you feel and behave. It's not just the external pressures on, from the world, from the external world. It's also kind of what you're bringing to it as well. So it's this, it's just this reminder that yes, there's external pressures, but the other ingredients is that it's the, your own, your own mm-hmm. thoughts, your own thought patterns and your own physical behaviors as well. And so I go through basically just a, a list really of here you go, let's itemize them. There's going to be on pressures. There's going to be these six categories on thoughts. There's going to be these four categories and on behaviors. There's going to be these five categories and it will be one of these. It's going to be one of these. So just get in the habit of just having a quick look at this thing and just saying, how's my, how's my uh, demands? Have I got too much work, too much work, too little time? No, that's fine. What about roles? Clear roles? Yeah, no, that's fine. What about environment? How's your environment? And just going through each of these different things and just giving people basically a, um, a little cheat list, little cheat, li- cheat sheets as to. As to <laughs> amazing. That's a, it's amazing. You basically <laughs> created information architecture around stress and how stress happens. Yeah. So you have to give us a little, some golden nuggets here. So can you tell me what are those categories? Let's just do those internal thoughts because I've, I've personally been doing a lot yeah. of work on that and realizing that there are things about the external environment that I can't change. It's all about how I think about it and how I frame it internally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's made a huge difference in my personal stress level. So yeah. what are those, what, I think you said four or five, what are those different? If I realize that I'm having a thought, stressing me out 
what are the, what are those categories of yeah. thoughts? So on specifically on the thoughts, it's and in the workshops, I always do like a little informal survey, and the ones that is always, always, always self belief, always. Yes. So you know, and and under that is all the stuff around not just confidence, but also imposter syndrome, charlatan complex, all of this stuff. It's always there. I mean, there are some people that don't have that. Um, but they are really in the minority. And the thing with this stuff is actually it's all it's all useful to have. It's a, it's a useful little bit of programming that we have. It's just when it kind of goes unchecked that it becomes unhelpful. So self-belief is always one. Another big one on, on, on the thoughts bucket is catastrophizing and magnifying. And so, yeah, like I said, anybody that's done any sort of reflective work, whether it's CBT or talking therapies or mindfulness, they'll, they'll know this stuff. And they'll have experienced it. But yeah, catastrophizing. And I, and I wonder if this is something that as UXers, we sort of slide into a little bit because we are by nature, you know, empathy is so strong. And imaginative in us. too. And we, yeah. <laughs> we, our our, our yeah. imaginations can tend to run away with us. Yeah. And we're sort of having to play this balance between empathizing with an individual yet also thinking in the large scheme of things of, I don't know, an entire society or an entire user base for this app or something. So we're having to do both micro empathy and also large scale magnifying at the same time, both of which is really fun to do. But I just wonder if that is, if that feeds into the, the kind of the, the catastrophizing and, and slightly magnifying and well, we have to extrapolate. So it's that skill of extrapolating yeah. and, and we can do it for, yeah, we can, that extrapolation is good to be able to do, but then it can cause that catastrophic yeah. thinking for sure. Yeah. So there's all sorts of techniques around that. There's, there's, there's loads of them, loads of them. I mean, the ones that I go, I've got four, they're basically just thought exercises for how to deal with catastrophizing. And they're, they're dead simple. There's things like the uh, coaching psychologists would call temporal visualizations, which is basically a fancy way of saying it won't last forever. So whatever's going on, however difficult it is, it's just, it's just a, a way of sitting down and thinking, well, okay, this is, this is how the project feels at the moment, but how did it feel three months ago? How might it feel in three months? How might it feel in six months? And by doing that, you just very quickly think, oh, yeah, no, I'm just in a little, this, it, it, this is just an isolated mm. thing and it, it won't always be like this. And it might just be that, oh, it will go away as soon as we do that presentation right. next week. And that's just, just that, that as a little technique is just, um, it's just a simple, that's one example, but that's just a very simple um, and helpful technique. And the course leader that I, that I had when I was doing my, uh, my coaching course, a chap called Stephen Palmer, he, I, I asked him um, if he only had one, uh, one, one technique. So for all of his coaching clients, if he, if he only had one technique that he could use, uh, what, would it, what would it be? And, and for him, it was these kind of visualizations, these reframing visualization right. techniques. And so for, particularly for things like thoughts, for him, that was, that was it. So anything that's around visualization and reframing. Have you, have you played um, with, I think it's Tim Ferriss that kind of popularized the idea of writing out the worst case scenario. Oh, right, or yeah. you actually yeah. write down like, like, okay, the very worst case scenario is that this project, I, you know, that I launched the project, I've forgotten some terrible piece of information, I get sued because I forgot that terrible piece of information, yeah. my entire family goes bankrupt, I'm out, I'm, I'm living yeah. under a piece of cardboard on the streets, and you just write it out and yeah. realize how ridiculous <laughs> it sounds. Yeah. And then you also do the experiment of like, okay, what are the chances that this would happen? Okay, probably very slim. This would be the worst case scenario. Yeah. 
And how long would it take me to actually bounce back from this? A year, maybe, maybe six months or something. And then you realize like, even if this terrible, terrible thing happened of me and my family living under a piece of cardboard, I still have my skills. I still have my health. We'll be fine. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's a, it's a great exercise to do, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it plays into um, it plays into all sorts of other things as well around around assertiveness and, and demands as well. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of these kind of techniques, they kind of work hand right. in hand. There's a sort of a, an attitude shift, which then very quickly fits into changing something in how your project is set up. So there's loads of things around demands and how to deal with the idea that you've just got too much yeah. on. So that's another thought. It's a, you know, it's a thought that I'm overwhelmed. There's so much going on. I don't have the time. And then there's also a very practical, just productivity technique to just, well, is there, you know, list it all down. Let's see what there is. Let's unpack what needs to be done. Let's see what can't be delegated. Let's see what takes three minutes to do. And then whatever's left is like, oh man, I'll just schedule that. So there's all these, these other techniques around actually how to deal with workloads that are just you know they almost feel magic when you go through them so a lot of that stuff is around just you know the getting things done you know I cover the getting things done approach the GTD approach which is so common and and well written about but I'm almost it's one of these that there's a few actually in the workshop I do there's about there's about 16 17 techniques there's a few in there that are just so kind of common and obvious that I'm like oh Jesus really should I should I include this but I do because whilst a lot of people have heard about them a lot of people don't have the habit of using them and that's that's the key really is like well actually just use it you know the whole getting the whole getting things done approach um you can just decimate your to-do list within about three minutes and going through that in a workshop is so it's it's just liberating and everyone just feels light and good off the back of doing it i think that we're like everybody listening is probably like when is the next workshop and the good news is is we're all stuck (laughs) at home but i'm sure you figured out ways to adapt this to the yes, online right, yeah. space. And I think a lot of people are probably experiencing all whole new levels of stress, um, job insecurity, um, working from home with, uh, with small humans running around screaming. So when are you going to teach us this? When is your next online workshop that we can all join? Yeah, well, you, 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 you flatter me by, by assuming that I've got the whole uh, virtual thing worked out. Um, I'm, I'm in the process of working out how to how to convert this virtually. Um, so far, these have all been conferences and doing conferences and organizations face to face. I've done talks. I've done I've done, you know, remote talks on this. Um, I did one on Thursday. Um, but the full workshop, I'm just working out how to do that. And I've got a couple of different formats that I'm playing with. So the best thing at the moment and what I've been doing is collecting people's collecting people's email addresses who are interested. So if you're interested, send me an email ben at bensimmons.co that's simmons with a d so that's ben at ben simmons b-e-n-s-i-m-m-o-n-d-s dot co send me an email and um i will get back to you once i've got the dates well um, for ben this. this is just not good enough for me so yeah <laughs> no, <laughs> it's I not thought- good enough for me because we're all because uh, <laughs> i need this now so we talked about perfectionism and the and what i'm doing yeah. with my course is running a beta so you've got to do a beta. You just got to yeah. test it. And I, and I know I would, be a, I would be a very happy guinea pig on this. And I know okay. a lot of other people that would be very happy guinea pigs. And then you don't charge very yeah. much. You charge us like $10 or something like that. And it's a learning experience. So I think that you should try That's to it. This. Give you me the stick. This in the next two you weeks. The- and you just put it out there. And if you 
you can you can want to use my big Zoom room. You can use my big Zoom room. I will host you, and we'll, let's make yeah. it happen because we all, we all need this let, now. We'll, we'll we do all it. need this now. We can't we can't let you we'll spin your wheels trying to figure out how to perfectly do it. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll make it happen. This is great. You know, this is it. Holding yes. me accountable. Yes. Yeah. Um, great. Let's try no, to um, we'll, we'll try to get it out so that when we launch this this episode, we can say and then and here's the link to sign up for for the webinar that's going to be happening next week or something like that. So that gives you gives you about two to three weeks. OK, yeah, perfect. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can work awesome. to that. Okay, yeah, you have a deadline. So I can't let you, I know, yes, I know we're coming you. up on time. So we probably need to go ahead and think about what is our OUX conversation going to be? And when is that going to be in a few months or something? But I can't let you go without talking about object during UX at all. So, okay, so yes. you can give you, me a few more minutes. Oh, as long as you need okay, on this topic. Wonderful. So, um, so for those uh, out there that don't know what object during UX is, if if most listeners do, but um, before we go into nerding out about object drawing UX, I just want to invite you. Can you define it or explain it to our listeners? Oh, right. Um, what does it mean to you? There's um, no right or wrong answer. Well, I can tell you how I first came across it and embraced it and realized that this was what I needed. I was working on a project for um, a company called ADP. I think they're, I think they're bigger in the States, actually. Oh, yes. ADP. I had a eight month contract with ADP. I worked for them too. Yes. Hey. Yes. I worked on, I worked on the ah, payroll suite. Uh -huh. Did you? Right. Okay. So I was on the HR side of things. So they do big, they do big, old, complicated um, software and it's super rich, many moving parts. And I think there's still, they, you need to get special um, sort of developers and engineers to actually configure this stuff for your company. So it's really, really complex stuff. And I was in there um, on a, a UX redesign project. We were looking at how to approach the, the sort of the, the structure, so, you know, how to do the IA. And we just kept sort of thinking, no, we don't have the tools we need. This, this, this is too complex a thing to work out the, the structure of the thing and, and, and how all the, what all the bits are and, and, and um, what, the, what the model of this is. So, um, you know, we tried doing all sorts of just normal hierarchical modeling and site mapping it was just like nah this isn't working and, and I'd known about things like entity relationship models and I thought it's something like this and I've not had experience of trying to take entity relationship models but use those in a UX information architecture testing and iterating sense so I was like it's something along these lines but it, but I don't know what that is so I just went and did a load of research around this this topic and there were two things that I, that I found. One was, one was the work that a chap called Mike Atherton, um, who worked of at the course, BBC, yes. was doing on, on, on yes. Linked Data. And it was really good work. And I was like, bingo, this is it. This is what I, this is. He's looking at that, this in the right way. He's looking at things as objects and relationships and so on. Um, but I couldn't find through just the presentations, I couldn't find kind of practical examples of how to actually do this and how to um, mold it and play with it in workshops and figure it out. And then I, by a chance would have it, your article, uh, your list apart article came out and the timing was just one of these uncanny timing things. And, and I read this and I was just like, this is it. It's just like fell straight through the browser and it was like this is exactly what we're after and I called across my colleagues and I was like just read this and they'll just you know and it's like well that's that's how we do it and it's and it's a manual it's a it's a it's a manual and and it's using colorful blocks and it's everything we would want and it was um 
so we just embraced it from 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 that point on and we we got the product owners to sort of um happy with that as an, as an approach and we just adopted it so it's was, it's was basically a way of looking at the system of everything within this bit of software not thinking in terms of pages and hierarchies but thinking in terms of information or data or objects conceptual objects um and how they relate or don't relate to other types of objects and getting that kind of that nature that relationship about right was the kind of the building block that we needed um, to then start thinking about right now how might we start putting some kind of um, interface over this so i'm sure you've got some much more succinct ways no that's great and i love hearing that story and it's i think it's uh, so my my follow-up question is when you were um working with the team and they came on board was the the client team and the business team how did you get did so they also signed off on it and did you collaborate with them on the object mapping the non-designers yes we had it was like a kind of hybrid um business analyst product mm -hmm. owner we went through it with him and he after about five minutes he just says he clicked his fingers and said, yeah, got it. Let's do it. And we had, it was, it was a nice office and we had um, a nice big loads of white wall space. And we said, look, the thing is you've been on this, you've, you've run this bit of software for several years. We don't have a hope in hell of mapping this out on our own because a lot of this is, you know, this is subject matter expert stuff. So when can you get time to have a crack at, at doing a first pass at this? And, and, and we will be, we will be with you and we'll kind of help sort of facilitate it. And he just picked up the pen and went off and did it. <laughs> it was just, and it was just brilliant. The, the first version he did was a bit more kind of um, a little bit more mind mappy, but it was fine because he was, he was also putting a little bit more of the, he was thinking as much about the relationships um, and whether it's a kind of a, a parent yes. child or is it a one to one to one or one to many. He was, he was already there. So, and it was useful because he was sort of a, he'd come from a BA land. So he was already thinking in these mm -hmm. terms. So, it was yeah it, it, it straight away it was the right it was speaking to the right, right person um who just got that concept and was just loved the fact that we were in, in, embracing and i feel it. like that's um that's one of my one of the biggest benefits of doing this work is it's such a great way to get your subject matter experts involved in the process early and really just extract all their expertise versus playing what i call the bring me a rock game where you kind of show them a wireframe and you say is this is this what you're looking for? Is this right? And then they nah, 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 move this thing around. And then you go back and then you say, is this, is this the type of rock that you're looking for? And they're like, no, not quite. Yeah. Um, that kind yeah. of threat. But they'll, they'll know, know it when they, they see it. See it. Um, this is a way to kind of circumvent yeah. all that rework. So one yeah. thing that I want to, that I mean, want to applaud you on is that, or, or your, your colleague that was going into that entity relationship diagramming. So since that 2015 article came out, the process has evolved so much you know i've taught it so mm. many times into so many different groups and one big change last year um, was the orca process which is objects relationships capabilities and attributes and we actually go through mm -hmm. multiple iterations in that order 
So we figure out the objects. Uh -huh. And then we actually, before getting into metadata and core content, we go straight into those relationships, at least at a really, really okay. high level. And we actually do build an entity relationship diagram. I call it a system model, but yeah. we do our we do our crow's feet diagramming to show that zero to many or one to many relationship. Start thinking about parent child yeah. relationships. So we iterate on it actually. So we do that. You know, figure out the objects at a really high level, map out the relationships at a really high level, then actually go into capabilities or calls to action at a really high level. Think, okay, what is right. what do users want to do to each of these things? and then go into the detailed yeah. object mapping. And then we loop back around four times, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, so nice. four iterations of going through Orca gets us from, I, I understand the problem because we've done a lot of research to where you're ready to actually start sketching because you've taken all that research and synthesized it into information architecture, basically. So you, you were ahead actually in doing that more relationship diagramming up front. I just realized that that was something we needed that kind of bird's eye view before going in and, and saying, uh, okay, we have a title, we have a description, we have, we have a timestamp. <laughs> so it's moving from that high level thinking to that really, really detailed thinking or bird's eye view to worm's eye view, back to bird's eye view, back to worm's eye view. Right. Nice. Oh, wow. That sounds great. That sounds really good. Yeah. Cause we, we, we sort of, we, we jumped in a little bit with it because we, we were trying to on one hand mock stuff up or at least sketch out how things might look. And so we were, we were quite early bumping into the sort of the, yeah, those, those, those relationship type things and the one to one to yeah. one, one to many, those kind of things. Uh, so we kind of, we did a little, we had a little modification, um, but that sounds like we, we kind of moved into your sort of step yeah. two. And, and so that's what, I mean, the, the entity relationship diagrams are great, but the thing about, they, they do hit a limit because when you're trying to map all those relationships, and if you have, mm. let's say you have 12 objects that you're trying, you have a very complex system, you have 12 objects, all with all these relationships, you get into a bowl of spaghetti pretty quickly where it's then yeah. it's hard to look at. So we yeah. basically take, okay, let's just take the core objects. Let's just, just do those very, very core, like big, thick marker relationships. And then when we get mm. into the building out the object map with our nested objects, then you can scale those relationships. You can write down every single relationship without getting into like the spaghetti scenario where it just becomes an unreadable yeah. document. So yeah. I love it. I, I, I mean, I really like the fact that it's so, it's such a quick start with yeah. it as well. And, and, and you're right, you, you look at you look at a sort of a proper ER diagram or whatever, and it's just like, it's, it's daunting, particularly from a, a UX point of view. I think if you're from a development or a systems architecture point of view, you're quite fluent with that way of visualizing and that that language. But from a UX point of view, those stuff, those things look daunting. So um, yeah, it seems it seems your approach is it, it's a very uh, comfortable route into it. And actually, you can have a good crack at a workshop. Um, and only need half an hour and you've got the initial the initial concept at least as to how to think about the system slightly differently right. and and this defining the things it's so much about the relationships between the other things i mean we define mm. things through their context of of other things so i'm i'm working right now with a um, a company that does um they basically help transition blood samples from a hospital to the lab and back and forth. So they're providing wow. this, the software for that. So very complicated, of course. Um, wow. But for me to understand, I mean, what is, what is a blood sample? 
okay, a blood sample is related to one patient. A patient can have many blood samples, but usually an order only has one blood sample. Sometimes it'll have two blood samples. And then what is actually a test? Is a test testing many blood samples or is a test only testing one blood sample? Can one blood sample be used for multiple tests or can one blood sample only be used for one test? And these are such important things to define what a blood sample is and thus to build software around the blood sample, I need to understand how it sits with all these other things. So just getting yeah. to that as soon as possible um, was, is, it's like define the objects and then figure out their relationships because that will help you define the objects even better. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I'm curious about your question um, that you asked a few weeks ago about quant testing. So what was the scenario mm-hmm. there? What were you? What brought up that question? The question about have what? Well, what the question was? Have you ever used uh, or, or how do you how do you basically quantify OUX? Yeah. The 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 um, so this was um, and this is something that we've grappled with on a project before. And it came up again on, on a project I've been working on recently um, as a second time. And it was around how do you start to get user feedback on the labels for the objects and the relationships? And if there are hierarchies and parent-child hierarchies, how do you start to get user involvement in defining and establishing all of that and in a kind of nice um if you're designing a i don't know a, a sort of a, a more of a content-led uh website like a marketing site and it's got a nice neat hierarchy it's kind of that's that's a little bit more straightforward and a little bit more easy to do um and you can be using tools like tree jack leaning on those a lot more to do you know it, following where where users might expect to, to drill through a tree structure and you can start testing the the, the structure that way so the the structure of labels and um, um, parent child categories and so on and get some really really nice numbers behind it um, see where they're where people are going down false paths um, improve the structure a little bit improve the labeling and run it again get better scores in tree jack Eventually, hey, presto, we've got scores of 85, 90% findability. That'll do. That's our IA. Let's go for it. And of course, you just can't do that when something is not of a fixed hierarchical thing. So if you're designing a, a system like these things, and this, this actually was an investment platform, you've got, you, you weave through the site, you sort of weave through the data, and you might have some landmark um, categories across the top or down the side, but the, the, the website with the, the interface isn't structured in that nice neat um, tree structure so it's it, it's how do you start to my question was how, how do you get good numbers around testing the labeling and structure and relationships for that you know for, for these kinds of complex uh, data rich um, systems and um yeah that was that was where the that was where the the question yeah came it's from. a great it's a great question um, and um and what I've done in the past and what I emailed you back is, is um, for answering. So if we think about Orca and we think about the questions behind Orca is what are the objects? What are the relationships? What are the calls to action that are on those objects? What, what, can, what can users do to the objects? And what are the attributes? What is, their, what is the structure? What is the chemical makeup of these objects? So for what are the objects, um, card sorting is great. So 
coming up with, but you're just, you're basically getting them, you do that noun foraging where you're going and you're finding all the potential objects. So you might have 40 potential objects. A lot of them might be synonyms. And you can do that from user interviews as well. So what are the nouns that you're hearing over and over and over again in your user interviews? And if you interview a bunch of people, even the same person, they're going to use synonyms for the same thing. Um, going back to the mm. blood sample can also be a specimen. Sometimes it's used interchangeable with product, sometimes product segment. Um, those are different things, but sometimes depending on who you're talking to, they get used interchangeably. So writing those mm. down and saying, okay, we have a, a sample, a segment, a specimen, and a product, and a unit, actually, there were five of them. And you have that mixed up with all the other things, an order, a job, um, all these synonyms, right, that you've extracted from, um, from all the research that you've done. And you can put those cards in front of somebody and start getting them to group them and put their preferred term on top. <laughs> so they group sample and specimen and, um, and unit together and they put sample on top and nine out of 10 people put sample on top and some people put product in there too. And so you're an outlier, you put product in that pile, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about why you put product in that pile and is that really the same thing? How do you define this versus you define that? So it's qualitative and quantitative at the same time, but doing some sort of card sort like that to hone in on what your objects are. And then the relationships, it's doing those like you might do your, your original entity relationship diagram or system model, and then the ones that you have question marks on. So one that we had was, does a um, sample have one test or does a sample have many tests? Like you just write down both those statements. A sample has only one test. A sample can have many tests and then you say true or false and you give them a big true or false questionnaire and you see which relationships are the most true. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever, I can't ask you a question. Have you ever, with the, um, your card sorting, so you're doing, you're doing, um, you're doing sort of, you're doing a, you're doing a closed card sort. Have you ever tried to do that with, with some open card sort as well, where, um, mm -hmm. you know, almost maybe you give a description and try to, try to hold back on the, what the keywords might be um, and see what they might use. Yeah, in a, um, in a workshop with a bunch of users. So you can run an OUX workshop with users, um, which is a beautiful thing to do. I've only got the opportunity to do it a few times. One of them was with Delta, which was great. And they actually, it was with the, um, the travel uh, agents that work within Delta, so internal travel agents. And they, I mean, Delta was a great client and I guess they, I guess they have cheap flying. So they flew everybody in from all over the world, actually. We had people from like six different countries in this workshop. And we basically, I taught them the basics of OUX. It took about two hours. I lectured them and basically, you know, from a layman's perspective, taught them about OUX and wrote that we had a project brief and we had them with their blue sticky notes starting to figure out what the objects were. So they were actually doing that and they were split. We had 25 people. So we were split into five groups of five. So each of the groups would kind of come up with their short list of objects and then we would talk about it and say like, okay, you had, you had flight, you had segment, you had flight and segment. Like what are the difference between these things? Um, and we would just basically have conversations until we got to those objects. So the, the short answer is yes. Yeah. Nice. And um, can I ask yeah. you another question? So the, um, 
the bit that I really love about OUX is basically um, getting an object model that fits around users' mental models and users' intuitive language. And that's lovely. And that will always bump into the, um, the business, the business language and how things are described on the, the company's system side of things. And they will have their own somewhere. They will have their own little schema um, and data models. And they will have certain, they, they will need, they'll need, there needs to be like a translation somewhere between, well, look, I know you call it a, whatever, a role or a owner type thing, but for users language, it really is this. If we're going intuitive and kind of as mental models as we can be, um, we have a slightly different, slightly different labeling. Yeah. I'm really interested in um, how to sort of bridge that when you, you might, it might be that the model is sort of similar. The, the kind of the, the 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 user the one that's intuitive from user research that con conceptual model and set of labeling and, and vocabulary that might be quite similar actually to the the data model that the company has had for te the 10 years that they've been running the software off the back of um but if if there's a time when there's there's a fundamentally problematic phrase like you were describing there it's a thing it shouldn't be called a product um, or it's an account it shouldn't be called an account um, it's it, it's those discussions that are so fundamental to the business like there's such an ingrained label or yeah. idea about that object and it's 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 um do you have anything in your armory that helps with those kind of discussions around I know you always call that an account but it's not an account it's, it's a nobody person thinks it is an account <laughs> Um, yeah, right. I can empathize with you. Um, I feel your pain. <laughs> I um, and then an another layer on that is not just the 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 business um, guys and gals, but it's also the marketing as well. Because sometimes things have marketing labels, and marketing loves to make. And this is you know no um, no smack on marketing, but they like to make it look like a new shiny thing. And to make it a new shiny thing, they'll give it a new name. And this often doesn't serve the customer. So one in particular example of this is I was working with a company that basically it's a, they help put ads on the, on websites. So all across websites. So they, they they help place the ads and within the advertising world, we've always had the term, I mean, since the sixties, they've had the term campaign of an advertising campaign and people in advertising know what a campaign is. But within this company, they were calling what is essentially a campaign, an augmented line item. And it was like, it was marketing, actually. It wasn't even the business people because it was like, oh, we have this special thing. It's the augmented line item. It's really a campaign that has like a special, you know, little, you know, it's got some special um, magic to it that gave them a competitive edge, but it's a campaign at the end of the day. It's still a campaign, but they didn't want to call it that. So that was a, um, a a battle that we had to fight and say, you just need to call it a campaign or you call it an augmented campaign or something like that. But still, that's what it is, is a campaign. So you, you end up with that a lot as well, especially even marketing copywriting um, on marketing sites. They'll often call the same thing multiple different things because it's that when you're writing, you don't want to use the same word twice in a sentence. It's just like you want to come up with a synonym, even though it means the exact same thing. So they can be talking about the business and marketing it, but call the same thing 
you know, oh, here's our, um, we have all these wonderful products. And then a few lines down, they'll say, and if you're interested in one of our offerings, it's like a pro because they don't want to use product again. So they'll call it an offering, even though it's the same thing. Yeah. So it even, yeah. you know, it makes it worse. Um, there's the different business segments, the different business groups that are often calling things different. So not even just the business, it's two different groups in the business that are calling the same thing yeah. different. So you could end up with the user preferred term, business group A preferred term, business group B's preferred term, um, and then marketing six terms that they call the thing. Um, and I think that the biggest defense of that is to make sure people understand we cannot be very productive if we're using the different, different terms for the same thing. Like, what I always say to people is this work is already hard enough <laughs> without having to track seven words for the same thing. Like let's make our life easier and come up with that one word. And often one of my biggest jobs is word police. And I, I literally, I'll, I'll point at people and I'll say, wait, nope. What is it called? What do we call it? And everybody laughs. And then they could, you know, they go, Oh no, no, no. Okay. We're We're not calling it a segment. We're calling it a flight or we're not calling it a specimen. We're calling it a sample. Uh, and just to yeah. really encourage people to use that user's term, like let's speak our user's language because that's going to be yeah. the best for the business. The more we're speaking our users, yeah. don't do it altruistically, do it because it's best for the business. The more we're speaking the language internally, the more we're getting into the headspace of our customer, the better our product is going to be and the better our team is going to function. It's, yeah. So it's so important. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the, it, that, you know, they're just words, but when they're the words that are the, um, the DNA of what the product and service is that gets used all over all the literature and with, with the customer service team and, you know, on the interface, it's, it, 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 it's, it's critical. Yeah. We've, 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 we, on a previous project, we found actually that talking to the, the people on the phones, like the, the customer service team is just super helpful because they are having to talk the customer's language. Yes. It's a great point. And so they're, and so they're kind of, um, it, we saw this interesting, well, we listened to um, call center recordings and we were hearing the sort of translations that the, the, the call center team were doing and they were saying, oh, well, you know, and they, 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 were, they were translating the company speak into the user speak and they had their own scripts for how they do that. Um, and there you go. That's just, that just shows you, that's just shows you the symptoms mm -hmm. of, where they have to skew it for when it, when the rubber hits the, you know. And you're basically creating cognitive dissonance for all your customer service representatives that are having yeah. to do that translation. Like how much better would they be able to serve the customer if they weren't having to like <laughs> create this, like uh, let's translate it from the business language into the customer's language and then speak it into the customer's ear. It's, oh. it's, it, it's, it makes sense that it happens, right? It totally makes sense that it happens. We're human beings, but the more that we can try to, I, I, sometimes the most valuable document that I create for a customer is a glossary. Um, so we are, we're running up on time here. I definitely, we, we, we need to do a follow-up and talk, geek out more about OUX because this has been awesome. Um, I yeah, will to. link to all of your things and I will be following up um, so that when this episode launches, we can, you know, I'll splice in me saying, hey, and go to this URL here for, um, 
for Ben's beta virtual workshop on UX without the stress. You're don't on, st- you're on. Uh, I don't need any more of a, of a stick than that. That's fine. Don't stress <laughs> out about it though. I don't want to stress you out. You, oh my God. You'll be fine. You've got, you got, you, you got this. You have all the tools to not get stressed out by it. All right. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ben. Thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation and we'll be in touch. Loved it. Thanks very much. I'll see you soon. Bye.
Thanks for hanging out with the UX Hustle. For show notes and more episodes, go to uxhustle.org slash podcast. And remember, don't wait for inspiration to act. Act to get inspired.